This morning our text is 1 Corinthians 15. And we're primarily going to be focusing on the first 11 verses. Even though we will be kind of traveling throughout it today in our message. The text before us in 1 Corinthians 15 provides the heart of Christianity. The core of all Christian doctrine. It puts forth the seed of truth by which all other doctrines of Christianity blossom out of. If you don't have this seed, there is nothing else. You can know the doctrines, you can have all those other things, you can debate eschatology and the spiritual gifts and all of these other things, but if you don't have this seed, if you don't get this kernel right, you are outside of saving faith. These are the central and shared truths that all Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years. These are the shared truths that every blood-bought brother and sister who will walk in glory with Christ. These are the truths that they have believed. This is what unites us in Christ. This we believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll begin by reading just the first eight verses. We read, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Corinth was a rough place. If you think America is full of immorality and scandal, you have never known about ancient Corinth. There was a Greek word that, that was, was titled Corianthazomai, which was a verb that was used to, de, to denote the worst immorality possible. So literally, Corinth had a verb made up for itself. It was so bad. And my friends, if Jesus Christ can save a people there and start a church there, there is no place that is outside of His reach. But this church was full of several problems. It was full of divisive personalities. It was full of deviant immorality. And it was full of doctrinal confusion. In other ways, it was the American church. And in the midst of all of this mess... That's happening at the church of Corinth. Brothers and sisters, the church is messy. It's messy. Praise God we are united not because of what each other do, but because of what He did. We are not here. I am not your Savior. Your neighbor is not your Savior. He is our Savior. And in the midst of all of their mess, Paul says, look to the beginning. Look to what all of you, look to the reason all of you are together to begin with. He brings them back to the basics. Now, many of you have played sports or instruments or other things. And oftentimes, when things are, when you're in a rut, when, when things are out of tune, when, when you're missing the ground ball, when you're in a, a hitting rut, there is one thing that oftentimes the coaches would say you need to get back to the basics. You need to rethink and be reminded of the fundamentals. You're getting too creative. You're missing the point. The reason 
that I believe there is so much doctrinal error in the American church is because it doesn't even know the basics. It's too busy arguing and fighting over secondary matters when it has no clue of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. That's what it means, the good news. The glorious news, the greatest news that has ever been given. And here is what makes that news good. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that's what makes this great news. Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you and which you received. Let's get back to the main thing. You're, you're, you're all over the place because you haven't even been focused on the main thing. You want divisiveness to be torn down? Go back to Christ. You want doctrinal confusion to be swept away? Go back to Christ. You want immorality to be crushed? Go back to Christ. And that's the call. Get back to the gospel. Brothers, I need to remind you of the gospel. In other words, even if you've been a Christian here for 50, 60, 70 years, you never outgrow the gospel. You never outgrow the necessity to hear what Christ has done for you and to have your heart constantly fixed upon Him and Him alone. The call of the gospel is this. When everything else in the world seems dark, when you seem to be beset by your sins over and over again, there is one place your eyes must constantly be set, and that is a vision of Christ. What the church needs today is not a new vision of Christ. It just needs the vision of Christ. It needs to be reminded of the gospel. My friends, the gospel is the good news of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. It is good news because it presupposes bad news. And the bad news is this. Apart from Jesus Christ, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You stand guilty, condemned before a holy God in the courtrooms of heaven. That's the bad news. And the good news is this. That God, through His perfect eternal Son, has provided a means by which you can be made right, given peace with a holy God, and stand forever justified, sanctified, and glorified in Him and Him alone. That's the good news. So what is it that we believe? What is it that we believe as Christians? What is it that Paul says you received and that you stand and that you are being saved? Notice that, that, that concept of being saved. It's continuous. Yes, when you, when you surrender to Christ, repent of sin, you are saved. But you don't just stop there. You are being saved. And you will be saved. Past, present, and future. It is an ongoing work of being transformed from one glory to another. All through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is the constant fuel needed to make you more like Jesus. Because what is glory? Glory is to be like Him. So that's why you ever need Him put before your eyes. So that you might be made more like Him. And that on the day of glory, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, Paul says. There is never a moment, not a single second of your life, that you do not need the glories of Christ infused into your soul. We must get these truths right. These events are not mystical, esoteric mythologies. These are true historical events by which the entirety of our faith is built upon. If these things did not really happen, if Christ did not really die, if He was not really buried, if He was not really raised from the dead, then we are of all people to be pitied. This is all makeshift and you should leave now if this did not really happen. It is better for you to go live your life, eat, drink and be merry, as Epicurus would say, because tomorrow you die and there's nothing else if these things are not true. But indeed, my friends, they are true. They are truer than true. 
and the entirety of what we believe stand upon these historical realities that is put forth us today. This we believe. And in these truths today, you find the absolute seed of what all of Christianity blossoms out of. If you do not hold these truths to in all of your heart and believe them with all of your heart, you are outside of saving faith. So I say to you today, hear the gospel and believe it. For it is true. And my friends, your lack of belief does nothing to undermine the realities of these events. Your lack of belief only undermines your eternity. So hear this morning what we believe. And if you're a Christian this morning, be reminded of what we believe in what you stand for and by what you are being saved. First, we see Paul tell us, we believe in Jesus the Christ. Notice what he says there at verse 3. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ. We'll stop there. That Christ. Notice Paul says something about the gospel. It's of first importance. Everything else is secondary besides this because this alone is what saves. Why do we start with this? That Christ. It's because hear me today, brothers and sisters. It is not the amount of your faith that saves you. It is not the sincerity of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. You can believe with all your heart. You can be the most pious and sincere individual in the world. But if the object of your faith is wrong, it's all for nothing. You can run with all of your might. But if you're going the wrong direction, it doesn't matter. We believe in Jesus the Christ. He is the sum and the substance of our faith. He is the supreme object by which salvation is found. He alone is the means by which anyone can be saved. He alone is the singular object by which all men can be saved. And you may say, it seems awfully exclusive. You're right it is. You're right it is. For the way to destruction is wide. But the road to salvation is narrow. What does it mean? It means there's only one way. There's only one way to eternal life. And His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. Now, why is it that He alone is the means of salvation? Well, let's, let's talk about why we believe in Jesus the Christ. First and foremost, it is because He is the eternal Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. He always has been and always will be. He is the Word by which all things were brought into creation. He is the one by which all of the law and the prophets looked to as the means of the hope to come. In eternity past, He made a covenant of redemption with the Father. And this covenant of redemption was made on the basis of how sinners would be saved. And He volitionally put Himself forward. And that when the fullness of time came, He came emptying Himself by taking on humanity. Being born in the form of a slave fully obedient to the law of God in every way, born of a virgin, so that He could ensure a new line could be established for humanity. One which broke the old line of Adam. And He lived a perfect life, a life that you and I could not live, in absolute and utter obedience to the demands of God's law. And when He had fully completed His mission, Ensuring that everything necessary which must happen for the Messiah happened. He gave Himself to die. My friends, no one took Jesus' life. He gave it. Which is why it was very clear. He gave up the ghost. He gave up the Spirit. He gave Himself up on Calvary. He alone, and He alone could do it. My friends, God could not send an angel to save us. God could not give another man in our place. He had to be a God-man. Why? Because only He who was strong enough to bear the weight 
of God's wrath and the sins of an innumerable multitude was worthy enough to take Calvary. And Christ alone is worthy. He alone, as the God-man, was able to bear the fullness of the weight of God's wrath, the fullness of the sins of His people, to meet God's requirement in absolute perfection. He had to be man in order to be a perfect substitute on our behalf, to be a greater Adam, to live a life that we could not live, so that the fullness of humanity could be restored and established in Him. My friends, this is why we believe in Jesus the Christ. Everything He did was a fulfillment of Scripture. Everything He did was an absolute testimony of His goodness and His faithfulness. And my friends, He alone burst out of the grave in victory. In other words, Jesus claimed to be equal with God. There's a reason they wanted to stone Him. Jesus claimed to have power to forgive sins. And if this was a blasphemer, I can assure you God would not raise him from the dead. But he is risen. And therefore, everything he says is true and accurate in veracity. My friends, Buddha is in the grave. Muhammad is in the grave. All 17 Dalai Lamas are in the grave. But Jesus alone is risen. He is the Christ. He is the sum and substance of our faith. And I do not make this claim on my own volition. I make this claim precisely because Jesus Himself said He alone was the way. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. He is the only way, the exclusive means of salvation. All of the fountains of God's blessing flows directly through the spring of Jesus. Peter, preaching to Israel, would say this to them. And there is salvation in no one else. Acts 4.12 For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. We believe in Jesus the Christ. Why? Because of His character and competency. He is who He said He was, and He was competent to do everything necessary for our salvation, and He alone bears those realities. And so He alone is the object of our faith. To put your faith in anyone else or anything else is to put yourself in great harm. We believe in Jesus the Christ. Secondly, we believe that He died for the forgiveness of sins. Paul continues that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Here's the good news. You are in your sins and trespasses. And when God came down in human flesh in Christ Jesus, He could have came and wiped us all out and been perfectly just in doing so. But rather than sending a warring king who comes and slays all of his enemies, which if he did, none of us would be here. He comes and sends a suffering servant who dies in the place of sinners who is rebelled against him. The king who dies for rebels. This is Christ. And as we talked about on Good Friday... What is it that Christ did at Calvary for us, my friends? He did not merely leave us an example of what suffering good looks like. He does not come and He is not merely a poor victim of evil governments. No, my friends. Christ went to Calvary as a victor. As a victor. He died to win. At Calvary... When He was placed upon the tree of death, that cross, in Jewish law, to hang upon a tree was to bear a curse. Curse is the man who hangs upon a tree. And Christ is, does bear the curse. But why? He's perfect in every way. Spotless. Sinless. And the answer is, it's because He places your sin upon Himself. 
at Calvary, He dies for your sins, not His own. All of your sin was placed upon Him. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. All of your sin was placed upon Him at Calvary. Why? Because you had a debt that you could not pay. You, when when held against the law of God, were guilty, guilty, guilty. And you could never pay back what is owed. And therefore, you are due the reward for disobedience, which is justice. But rather than the Lord pouring out condemnation and wrath on humanity right then and there as He could, rather Christ bears the sins of all those who will believe upon Him. And at Calvary, the Father pours out the full cup of wrath on His Son. And Jesus drinks every drop of it dry for those who will believe upon Him. He drinks the cup of sin and wrath fully, though He did not deserve it. And that is why when he said to tell us thy it's finished, that's what he was saying. The wrath of God was now satisfied in him. The father's justice fully met. To tell us thy it is finished. It is a term of both banking. It was a term of, uh, of, of judicial system and it was a term for the military. In the banking system, it meant that the debt is paid. It's been paid in full. All of the debt that you owed for your disobedience was paid fully at the cross of Calvary. It is a term of, of judiciary uh, context in the, sense, in the reality that when it was finished to Telestai, it meant that a prisoner's sentence has been served. It's completed. When Christ drank the full cup of wrath for sinners, the sentence was served. God has no need to rehash that punishment for those in Christ Jesus. And it is a military term which meant the battle was won. And my friends, at Calvary, the battle was won. Christ had defeated sin and He defeated Satan. Why? What was Satan's greatest weapon against God's people? It's accusation. He's the accuser. And He would wish to hold your sins against you and say, guilty, guilty, guilty. But when Christ cancels the debt of sin, everything that that Satan might use against you in the court of heaven has been annulled and removed. Blotted out by the blood of Jesus. So that now there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Innocent, paid in full, if you're in Him by faith today. He died for the forgiveness of sins. That is the greatest news in the world. And this is exactly what the Scripture said He would do. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4-5. through five. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Notice, it was through His pain that we receive peace. That's what He did for sinners like you and me. Peter picks up on this, 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you've been healed. What does it mean we were healed? What does that mean? What does the cleansing of our sin, the removing of our sin, how does it heal us? Remember, what are the wages of sin? It's death. And what is death? It's separation from God. So how did Jesus heal us? Peter tells us again, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's how you were healed. You were healed by being reconciled to God. When you believe upon Jesus Christ, 
and you receive the covering, the imputation of His righteousness, you are made right with God. And that's the greatest healing in this world. My friends, you can be crippled and walk again, but you'll still die. You could be healed from the cancer this morning, you'll still die eventually. The greatest healing that has ever taken place is to take dead sinner and make him right with holy God. And my friends, that miracle is happening every day because of King Jesus. And every single one of you in this room who are in him today are a walking miracle that he has made alive those who were dead. Jesus died for sins. The debt is paid. The sentence is served. The battle is won. And because of this glorious reality, we know that this is what happened. We know that His death actually accomplished something. It accomplished exactly what He said it would. How can we know this? Because He was vindicated by the resurrection. Thirdly, we believe that He was physically resurrected from the grave. Verse 4-8, through that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared more to, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Notice the physical reality of this. We believe that Jesus was physically resurrected from the grave. Notice, he, first he says, that he was buried. Why even say that? Because he wants to make clear, when Jesus died, he really died. He really was buried. My friends, the Romans had their own issues with a lot of things. One thing they were really good at doing was killing people. They had done countless crucifixions. They knew when someone had died. And he was really dead. He was really buried in the tomb. Bodily, physically, he died. And he was raised on the third day. This is not some esoteric, well, he, 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 his, his, his spirit was raised and he lives in our hearts today and that's just it, but His body's still there and this is just a, 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 an analogy or a metaphor for how we overcome death by living with joy and peace. That's all garbage. He really came out of that grave. He bodily was raised. Literally to the point that He goes and eats fish. He's eating with His disciples. I don't know about you, but maybe you saw Casper as a child when they were eating and the food was falling through them. This is not what's happening. Bodily raised from the dead. And as he was raised from the dead, it was a vindication of everything that he taught was true. That everything that he, was, that he had done was perfected. That God vindicated his son by ensuring he didn't stay in that grave. My friends, Jesus did not need the stone to be rolled away in order to get out of there. The empty tomb, the stone rolled away, was less for Him and more for us. Because it bids us all come and see where He lay. Come and see that He is risen. Come and see that He is still not dead. Come and see that everything He did at Calvary was true and good and perfected and finished. See, everything that He said was indeed true. That He is the eternal Son of God. He is the I Am. Amen. And see Him vindicated by the resurrection. See the triumph over sin and Satan and death at the empty tomb. Unless you struggle to believe this, Paul says, notice that He appeared. Appearing. He, he uses that term over and over again. It means that He physically showed up. He appeared first to Cephas. That, that's Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. So he goes and he, he shows himself to the other disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Remember after his resurrection, Christ walked upon the earth for 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God before he ascended to glory. Over 500 brothers of whom Paul says most of them are still alive. In other words, Paul's saying, if you don't believe me, go check my sources. There are countless eyewitness testimonies of the physical resurrection of Christ. 
You would not undermine any other historical document that had this much eyewitness, but we want to do it when it's about Christ. There is more veracity and authenticity to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is any other ancient source of antiquity. So if you want to believe that Caesar crossed the Rubicon, but not Jesus rose from the grave, then it's all about your heart, not about the evidence. He really rose from the grave. And he appeared to himself, not only to these 500, but also to James, his half-brother, who didn't believe him. We read in, in John chapter 7, verse 5, that his brothers didn't believe in him. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He did not believe in Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And yet, James goes on to be the lead elder of the church of Jerusalem and write a book of the New Testament. What's the difference? He saw a risen Savior. And when he writes his epistle, he doesn't say James, the half-brother of Jesus. He says James, the slave of Christ. A seeing and encountering a risen Jesus changes everything. A half-hearted group of disciples that abandoned Jesus when it got dark, all of a sudden really willing to risk, risk their lives for a risen King, which could easily have been shown to be false. You know how easy it would have been for the Roman government to say, no, we threw his body out. You know how easy this claim would have been to falsify. And yet within a matter of days, you have hundreds of disciples proclaiming the risen Jesus. Why? Because he's risen. He's risen. Because if he isn't risen, everything else about our faith falls apart. Uh, Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 and 19, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if this really didn't happen, if He really didn't raise from the grave, we have no faith. We've got no salvation. And we are all people to be pitied. Why? Because we have followed a farce. I want you to know that today. The Apostle Paul hinges the entire fate of Christianity, Christianity on the singular point that Jesus rose from the grave. In other words, this would be the easiest faith in the world to destroy. All we need is a body. All we need is historical evidence showing that it was falsified. And I assure you, as the Christian faith spread rampant, over Israel and Judah in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and into all of the Roman world, both the Jewish high priest leaders and the uh, the Roman leaders would have done anything they could to undermine the reality. They would have put forth every ounce of evidence to show that this was all a lie. And yet they can't do it. They can't do it because he's risen and our faith stands true. Verse 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In other words, today, if you are in Adam, which every single person born into just regular physical lineage, you're in Adam and you are facing death. But if you are born again, in Christ Jesus, by grace, through faith, then you are made alive. His resurrection is a de declaration to you that you will live forever. That death no more has hold upon you. Which is why he says in 1 Corinthians 55-57, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to hear me today. Unless Jesus should return sooner, there is not a soul in this room that will not die. You are all dying as we speak. And one day, that cold breath of death will whisper upon your neck. Your time draws near.
But in Christ Jesus, you can look at that cold shadow and you can smile and say, you have no power here, death. My king has defeated you. Hurry up and do your bidding. For you only carry me home to glory. The resurrection of Christ for all of those who have believed upon Him has made death merely a doorway to glory. And He alone has accomplished that. And because of that, we read in verse 58, the last verse of this chapter, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is what gives us purpose. And hope in the Lord. Because Jesus is risen. Because your faith in Him is not futile. Because you are not pitiable and poor. Because you have trusted in Him. You have all the hope you ever need. And you can be certain of this. Because He is risen. And because He is returning. That everything that you do in this life for Him. Will never be in vain. Everything that you do in the name of Jesus will never be brought back in vain. So live for Him. He gave you life that you might live for Him. And to not live for Him is a wasted one. Everything you do for Him is never in vain. Why? Because He is risen, He is reigning, and He will be returning. Four. We believe that all the Scriptures testify to our need for Him. I hope you've seen this throughout verse 3 and 4. He died in accordance with the Scriptures. He was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, this is the letter to Corinth. This was written around 54 to 55 AD, uh, about 20 years after. It's one of the first New Testament epistles we actually have codified. These Scriptures that are primarily being talked about here are the Old Testament Scriptures. And from Genesis to Malachi, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that there isn't a single word from Genesis to Malachi that is not there to point us to Jesus. He is the greater Adam. He is the greater Noah. He is the greater Abraham. He is the greater Joseph. He is the greater Joshua. He is the greater David. He is the greater Moses. There is not a single aspect of the Scriptures that don't point you to Him. And your need for Him. Think of all the heroes of the Old Testament. And think about how much of a failure they all are. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. The man after God's own heart, David. And the strongest man who ever lived, Samson. All fail to sin. Even men at their best are ultimately failures left to themselves. We needed a greater hero. One who would be perfect in every way. One who could absolutely not only be perfect for himself, but perfect for his people and enter Jesus. All the scriptures illustrate we need him. And he is the solution that God will provide. He is the greater prophet, the greater priest, the greater king by which who will usher in a perfect salvation for his people forever. Jesus is the testimony of all the Scriptures. When you read your Old Testament, when you read your New Testament, they are all there to serve as an arrow pointing to a singular person, Jesus Christ. Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 25-27, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken... Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. From Moses to the prophets, it's all about Him. It's all pointing to Him. The singular testimony of the Bible. 35 different authors. 3,500 years of writing. All of it points to one singular purpose and person. The King Jesus Christ and His perfect atoning work for sinners. All of it points to Him. And to read your Scripture without any lens to Christ is to never see it. It's to miss it. It'll just be a dead word to you until you see that the streams of Scripture pour 
into the ocean of Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, and that is, why through, that is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God and His glory. He is the yes and Amen of all God's promises. Every promise of God finds its yes and Amen, finds its sum and substance in Jesus the Christ. When you wonder if God is faithful, look to Jesus. If you wonder if God will be faithful to His promises, look to Jesus. If you wonder if God is merciful, look to Jesus. If you wonder if God is loving, look to Jesus. If you wonder if God is gracious, look to Jesus. Everything, the sum and substance of all His Word is found in the living Word, Jesus Christ. My friends, this we believe. We believe in Jesus the Christ. We believe He died for the forgiveness of sins. We we believe... That He was physically raised from the grave. We believe that all of the Scriptures point to our need for Him. And this is our final we believe today. And you hear this with all your heart. We believe that there is no life He cannot redeem and transform by His grace. Look at verse 9-11. through For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believe. My friends, I believe with 100% certainty that to me the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ outside of the clear testimony of Scripture is Saul of Tarsus. Here, you have the greatest earthly enemy the church has ever known. He literally breathed murder after the people of God. He hated Christians. He sought to root them out and kill them. That was his singular mission. He wanted nothing else but to root the world of Christianity because he thought they were blasphemers. He thought they were evil. Literally on the road to Damascus to kill Christians there. To sentence them to death. And on the road, he encounters Jesus. The risen Jesus appears to him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? From that moment forward, Saul of Tarsus, you may know him as Paul, the missionary went from being the greatest persecutor of church history to its greatest missionary. What's the difference? Jesus is the difference. A risen King Jesus is the difference. And my friend, if He can save Saul of Tarsus, if He can save a murderer who does nothing but seek to murder His own people and make Him a missionary by His grace... There is not a single soul in this world that He cannot redeem. There is not a single life that He cannot redeem and transform by His sovereign grace. There is no one too far gone beyond the outstretched arm of a holy God. Jesus is in the business of reaching into the grave, reaching into the pits of hell, and plucking from it believers that now trust in Him, who He has made His own who He has called His own, called them by name, effectually calling them, bringing them to salvation forever. He took fearful, sinful, self-confident fishermen and made them the boldest preachers in the kingdom. He took a brother who didn't believe in Him and made him the elder of the church. He took people at Corinth who were wicked and immoral in every way and made them believers in Jesus. The risen King does that. And here we are, 6,000 miles away from Jerusalem, 2,000 years later, and he's got a whole lot of people in this room who got no business being here. But you know why you're here this morning? You know why I'm here this morning? Because he's risen. He's alive. And there's no one too far gone for him. There's no one who he can't save. There's no one who he can't redeem this morning. So if you're here with all of your failure and all of your brokenness and all your ugliness and all your sin and all the the, the messed up horror that you've done and all of your dark past, I want you to know this morning, you're right where you need to be. 
Because He alone can save you. He alone can redeem you. You are not too far gone. There is no past He cannot redeem. No life He cannot transform. No sin He cannot cover. We believe this. And this is what makes it good news. We are walking testimonies. Paul was a walking testimony that even the most wretched of sinner can be made a precious saint if they but believe in the King of glory. If they but believe in the King of glory. My friend, Jesus did not come to show off. He came to save sinners. And transform them for glory and the, for glory of His name and for the accomplishment of His mission. My friends, grace is both pardon and power. He pardons you of your sin and then He empowers you to greater living. He empowers you to live for Him. So if you're saying today, I, I can't change. I've always had these passions. I've always had these affections. I've always gone after these, these feelings and these desires. I want you to know today, that is not who He made you to be. He did not make you to be a slave of your lust. A slave of your passions. He made you to be a servant of the Almighty. And your life will never be put together as long as you are not serving Him. But hear this great truth today, my friend. Right where you are today, in all of your sin, in all of your wickedness, in all of your horror, all of your brokenness, all of your darkness, you can come to Jesus just as you are. But hear this great truth. He won't leave you that way. He won't leave you that way. Praise be to God, He won't leave you that way. His grace is pardon and power. And there is no one too far gone for it today. So you, my friend, are not too far gone for Jesus. Come as you are, but never be left the same. Here's our closing statement just to get it all in this morning. We believe in Jesus the Christ, who in accordance with the Scriptures died for the forgiveness of sins, was physically resurrected from the grave, and by grace redeems and transforms any soul that surrenders to Him in faith. Any soul. My friends, don't leave here today without being saved. Do you hear the effectual calling of God upon your heart this morning? Do you hear the whispers of your King saying, it is time to come home. Stop with the rebellion. Stop walking to the path of your own destruction. And hear my cry to come home to glory. To come home to salvation. There is an empty tomb in Jerusalem that forever proclaims, repent and believe the gospel. For He is risen. He is not here. This is what we believe. The question is today, do you believe? Do you believe? You will know no salvation until you surrender in faith to Christ. But the moment that you surrender, the floodgates of glory are opened for you. Do you believe today? Don't leave here without making it so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for the forgiveness of sins. We thank You for the victory of the resurrection. We thank You for the glory of the Scriptures and their singular testimony of our need for Christ. And God, we thank You for Your amazing grace. For Your abundant grace that that, that allows us to know with absolute certainty there is no one that You can't save. No one You can't redeem. No one You can't make Your own. No past You can't cover. No life You cannot transform. No sin You cannot crush. No desires and passions You cannot change for You. Lord, all of our hope is rooted in Christ. And this morning I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here who doesn't know You, who has been wavering between two opinions, that today that would be crushed. That You would break any sense of hesitation 
that you would break any re, uh, just pushback, resistance from the flesh. That you'd crush it by your sovereign grace. And that you would overpower every sinner here this morning and turn them into what you've always created them to be. Children of God. By grace, through faith in Christ. Oh God, let us walk in light of the glorious reality that because He is risen, there is nothing that we can ever do for you that is in vain. Let us stop living for the world. Let us stop being so easily satisfied by cheap substitutes. Lord, we were made for You and our hearts are restless until they find rest in You. So Lord, I pray there isn't a person today that doesn't leave here restless. But knowing the complete and perfect rest that's found in Jesus alone. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us where we still doubt. Help us where we struggle. Help us in our weak moments of faith. Lord, help us believe Jesus. Help us look to Christ and help us to never look away. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for transforming us. You are a good, good father who has given us a good, good savior who sanctifies us by a good, good spirit. Help us, Father. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Spirit. As we surrender all to the reality, there's nothing we can earn, nothing we can do, only receive the all-sufficient merit of the King of glory. Let us look to Jesus and give our hearts to Him forever and always. In His name we pray. Amen.